KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Last month, the San Diego Latino Film Festival showcased more than 160 films. As a follow-up to my podcast about Latin extreme cinema at the festival and beyond, I'm doing a follow-up podcast looking specifically to Mexican cinema and the two filmmakers I'm focusing on had films screened at the festival last month. The filmmakers are veteran director Arturo Ripstein and the up-and-coming Isaac Esbon. The festival showed Ripstein's latest film, Bleak Street, which reveals a master at the top of his form and a filmmaker who still has a fire in his belly to say something in bold cinematic terms. Esbon came to the festival to present his second film there, Los Parecidos, or the English title, The Similars. Ripstein is a third-generation Mexican of Polish and Russian Jewish descent. He grew up on the film sets of his father, Alfredo Ripstein Jr. When his father took him to see Luis Buñuel's experimental film Nazarene about the misadventures of a Catholic priest, the teenage Ripstein suddenly realized that film could be something other than the Mexican melodramas that his father often produced. Ripstein has spent his entire career making films outside the realm of conventional expectations and sometimes in conflict with Mexican censors. But he faces such conflicts with wry humor. It, it, it's it's horrifying, but it makes you sly. It makes you have to walk like a reptile around the obstacles, and uh, that can also be stimulating. Ripstein provides a context for what Mexican cinema has become. And that's why my second interview is with Isaac Isbon, a young filmmaker with just a pair of films under his belt. I spoke with Ripstein in 2000 after the San Diego Latino Film Festival screened his films Divine and No One Writes the Colonel. I conducted the interview at the home of his parents in La Jolla. Now, your father was in the film industry. He still is. Still is? Oh, yes, yes, yes. He starts a new movie in May. An old producer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to find out, what were your first memories of the film industry then, of filmmaking? Actually, my first memories of, of, of film are my first memories in, 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 in general. That and the horrifying birth of my younger sister when I was about two and a half. And, 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 and she, I, I'm the oldest son, the only son. And uh, all of a sudden she was born and I wanted to choke her. And I tried uh, fruitlessly for a while, but anyhow, the, the, that's my, my first memory. My second memory is of m me going with my father to see films with my father and mother and uh, go see him at work, which was for me absolutely fascinating. I remember sitting on Carlos Savage's lap. He's the editor of films like Los Olvidados and uh, The Exterminating Angel and Nazarene and all, mostly all of Buñuel's films he did in Mexico, and uh, I used to sit in his lap when I was about three years old, and it was absolutely fascinating. I mean, watching the little window there that had pictures that moved was absolutely astonishing to me. I, since, since then, I, I never wanted to quit. I never wanted to leave films. 
my my uh, imagining of things also pertained to that. When I had never flown on a plane, I, I, first time I flew on a plane, I must have been ten or twelve. I uh, was asked, "How? What do you think a, a, an airplane is like?" And I used to say, "Well, it's a big round thing that flies, and inside it has a camera and a director's chair and cables in the floor." and lights that uh, go up and down when a cameraman says so. Everything that I thought of was uh, about film. I never wanted to leave. I yeah, Once once I started, once I entered, it was destiny. I, I, I couldn't leave. It was absolutely fascinating. There was nothing more rewarding for me than my father taking me to see him work. Uh, when when I didn't get good grades in school, which was quite often, my father wouldn't take me, and that was horrifying. I mean, it was it was stimulating for me to get good grades because I knew then my father would take me to 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 the studio, and uh, that's how I uh, found my vocation and how I learned my craft. Now, when you were this little child watching the editing, what do you think fascinated you the most? Was it the images, or was it the machinery, or no, it was the it was the making of the thing. It was entering instantaneously into a make-believe world. I mean, you had doors that led nowhere and stairs that uh, went uh, up, but uh, to nowhere, and uh, you had no no ceilings, and uh, you had people painted people that were pretending to be somebody else, and you had a director telling them what to do and a cameraman lighting them up. It was. Absolute fascinating, absolutely fascinating. It was like nothing you could uh, gather in real life. I always, I've always preferred f fantasy than to, to real life. My filmmaking eventually has become a sort of a revenge against uh, reality, against the world. It's sort of a revenge and a defense, and 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 and. and Film can be a weapon, so it can be a defensive and, and offensive, and it, it, I've, I've always used it like that. It's always to guard myself from, from life, from real life. The other one is much, much better. The one that you invent, that you change, that you uh, control, that you discriminate upon, that's much more fascinating. Now, do you think that seeing at a young age kind of both sides of film, I mean, you're seeing kind of the magic of what goes on the screen, but you're also seeing behind the scenes, how those things are created. How do you think that might have influenced the way you make films now in terms of how you see the world or images? When I'm asked what uh, stage I prefer from from filmmaking, I, it's it's always the shooting, it's always the, 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 the making of the film, I guess, because I saw it and was so delighted to be there when I was a, a, a little kid. The, the whole aspect of the gears that go on to make a, a, a film were always um, very enthralling and uh, very important to me. So I still keep with that. I rather f shoot the film than, than watch it. it. Truman Capote once said that when you have a certain talent, God also gives you a whip in order to whip yourself. And in the case of filmmaking, the, the filmmaking is the talent and the whip is having to sit down and watch your, your movies, which is not that uh, fascinating anymore. You 
tend to only see what could have been done better or what you don't like or what you didn't learn enough or your weaknesses. So it's, it's, it's very complicated. So I'd much rather be there in the set staging up everything and uh, being on top of things than having to watch them later. So I guess that from my very young days, being so uh, marveled at how they did it, I do it then and I still marvel enormously. I mean, when I'm sitting down there and watching what's going on, it's still as uh, wonderful as when I was little. Now, do you still enjoy watching other people's films? or? Oh, certainly, yes. I go to the movies as much as I can. And uh, I, I am very stimulated many times with uh, from the things that I watch in, 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 in other people's films. It is uh, very inspiring many times. It's, it, it, it becomes less and less, not only with time, but with uh, real life also. Films are tending to get worse and worse uh, every time. I mean, one, you see a good film every so often, and uh, all the rest that, that, that I see, I don't like it all, and it, that, that becomes, to me, very depressing. But I go to the movies as much as I can. Now, I was reading that you, uh, I don't know if disillusioned is the right word, dis a bit disillusioned with the, the Mexican film industry and, and created your own company? No, that's, the, that, that's not exactly, I mean, it's not disillusionment. It, the, the, the problem basically is that we had a, a, a fairly large industry for a Spanish-speaking country for quite a while, Mexico was the largest industry in the, in, 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 in the Spanish-speaking world. We used to make anywhere from 100 to 120 films a year. Now the output is about six to eight films a year, and that is uh, uh, very difficult to handle. There's only just a, a handful of films made, and it's not that I'm angry about that it's uh, I'm, I'm very frustrated because there's n not many people that can go in and, and, and make films I made my own company because at a given point I thought I would uh, enter in, into uh, controlling a little more uh, if, if the, the, the possible gains of a movie we don't get paid a lot in, 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 in Mexico if we get paid at all so uh, sometimes you believe that one film can be rather more successful than another or whatever, and uh, having an, a company to control that I thought was a good idea. Of course, it, it's never happened that I've seen a cent come from the films that I've been into as a company. It's just for fun. Right? It's, it's my wife and my two sons that have the company, and uh, we just like to see the name and the credits. Now, do you use your company to produce your own films as well? Only my own, only films. Your own films. Yes, only my own films associated, of course, with the larger companies that do the films in, in Mexico. Film is financed by the government. Now, it used to be that there were producers that made the, the, the movies with loans from a special bank that uh, gave them money to make the films in care of distribution when it was... Uh, possible to distribute your films through our natural markets, which were the Spanish-speaking uh, audiences. 
that's not possible anymore. So there's an office in of uh, a film office in 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 Mexico, an official film office that gives you funding for the film when the film is accepted as a project, as a viable project. You get only about from anywhere from forty to fifty percent of the cost, so you have to get the costs from elsewhere. Uh, usually, uh, co-production is the is 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 the way. Co-production with uh, France or Spain or Canada or people that had countries that have signed co-production agreements with with Mexico, and uh, that that is how you get uh, things moving uh, there once in a while. So. My company usually works with a major, with a bigger company that is the one that handles Mexico's money. We're just associated in a very small, small term. Now, your films have run into some problems with censorship. How has that affected you? Censorship is a very interesting uh, issue. Um, you have to be very sly in order to, to sort of avoid it. Uh, Mexico used to have a very rigorous censorship at a given point. It's it's a bit more lax at this at this moment, but I've encountered with a few of my uh, works uh, some impossibilities to have uh, have them shown. Uh, one of my films was never released ever in Mexico. Fortunately, it's probably the worst film I, I ever did, so I was very thankful for the exquisite taste of the military that were the ones that, that, that forbade the film. And uh, there was another one or two documentaries that I did that were never shown in its entirety because the possible venue was television and they were quite censored. I mean, I made a one hour and 45 minute uh, feature length documentary that was shown with about 45 minutes off and it has been only shown uh, in the cinematheque and very partially and uh, so so I've I've encountered my my lot of of uh, of censorship uh, it, it it's it's horrifying but it makes you sly it makes you have to walk like a reptile around the obstacles and uh, that can also be stimulating Remember Buñuel with Viridiana when he was not allowed to make the ending that he wanted and he had a change. I mean, the ending that he wanted was Viridiana and her cousin, Francisco Raval, staying together uh, insidiously and uh, he was not allowed to do that. So he was asked to have somebody else in their presence and he decided to have this woman, the woman that placed the maid in the in, in in the film playing cards with with Raval and the cousin entering, and all of the the three of them sit down and start to play cards, which is a much more disturbing ending than the, the, the one he intended. So sometimes these issues of not being able to say the things as you want can make you say them in a much more uh, ferocious manner even though it is not ostensible. Yeah, I was interested in that because I know that there are some filmmakers like from um, Czechoslovakia, also some of the, the mainland Chinese filmmakers, where it seems like if you take them out of their country and put them in a situation where they may not have 
as much censorship problems. In some ways, their films don't seem as good as when they were kind of like fighting against. Oh, no doubt about that. I, I can remember Yol, the Turkish film that uh, was formidable. And when uh, the director left Turkey and went to France to make his film, he not only made a horrendous film, he also died. Uh, and and uh, so sometimes it, it, it works. When uh, Perestroika came in, Perestroika started with film, as you recall, uh, and they started to make any film that they sort of wanted. They started to make the worst films possible in, in, in the Soviet Union. So uh, it, it's reality that uh, makes you say what you have to say. It's belonging to a, a certain country within a certain system uh, uh, locked in a certain period of time that makes you say what you have to say. You, you, you are inevitably from where you are and inevitably from your time. You cannot be more modern than, than what you are. You can be a little more ancient but never more modern, which is one of, this, the, uh, of these struggles that young filmmakers try to keep up with constantly. Now, a uh, fil Mexican filmmaker like Guillermo del Toro has moved to Hollywood, or at least is making films in Hollywood. Is that something that has ever been an attraction, or do you feel that you really need to be in Mexico to make the kind of films that are of interest to you? The, the Mexican filmmakers that have moved to, to, to Hollywood, which are about four, Arau, Cuaron, Mandoki, and del Toro so far, uh, have become American filmmakers. You cannot distinguish their work from everybody else's, except in the case of Del Toro, who has uh, a stranger personality. Uh, in, in the case of the others, they just blend into whatever is asked uh, of them to do. Uh, I, I was tempted at a given point to go to Hollywood so for a couple of reasons. One, so that my work could be shown generally, and, and two, so that I could eat out of my work. Then I sat down to think, and uh, the price was costly. I wouldn't have been able to do the films that I do in Mexico, uh, uh, in, in the United States. I was offered, I still am, constantly films about a boy and a dog. I, I really wouldn't know what to do with that. For a number of the films that you have made, did you find it particularly difficult making films that didn't really have like a pro-Catholic kind of viewpoint in a country where Catholicism is so strong? I've never made anti-Catholic films, actually. Not anti, but I wouldn't say that they're really... They question, I think. Well, they question all sorts of things uh, in, in, in my film. Mexico is... Uh, is, is uh, uh, a Catholic country. I'm not a Catholic. I'm a Jew, but uh, I've I've always blended quite quite nicely. It's it's uh, a very liberal country, religious wise. I've uh, never been asked or 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 told to do things that have to do with morals, with Catholic morals, at all. Uh, what I question in 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 my work is is civil society in general, which includes, of course, religion, but it's never been an issue. I've uh, never been uh, a, a filmmaker of, of that uh, kind. I've never been a sociologist or an anthropologist with my work. I've always tried to get my opinions away from my work.
opinions. I have about everything, of course, but I try not to let them merge with the work that I'm I'm, I'm trying to do. So it's never really been 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 problematic in that sense. So the censorship problems haven't been in regards to problems the church has had. No, not 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 necessarily. Maybe once in a film many many years ago, but not necessarily. The main censorship issue right now is economic. The, the, the first and the worst one is, is, is self-censorship. Things that you don't do because you know you can't, you can't get uh, through with them, and so you just tend to forget them. And, and the second and uh, almost as bad is economic censorship, you, which is even worse here in the States because there's a lot of projects that never uh, get... Uh, lift get a lift from 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 the floor because economically they're not they're not feasible so there's so many works that haven't been done because they were not economically uh, right and uh, that is basically the, the the obstacle that I face or that we all face you cannot get monies to make certain kind of films because they will appeal to nobody and uh, they might be right but the films have a right to their to their existence even if, if they are not just to please audiences, even though when when you when you make films, even though you don't care a lot about success, which is certainly my case, I have to have a certain success, either critical or economical, in order to get on with 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 my work. It is not as uh, definite as in the states, where you're as good as your last uh, box office. Uh, uh, issue in in Mexico, being a failure or being a success does not uh, incide very definitely on your next work. You can have uh, uh, several flops and uh, and still keep on working if they have a certain critical uh, tone a certain critically acclaimed tone, even though it's very minor. So it's, it's, not a, it's not a big problem. Mexico, in that sense, if we had money, would be the ideal place to make movies in because you, you're never truly successful. You can be enormously successful within certain limits. What, it's what the French would call succès d'estime, which is... You're sort of liked, but you're, it, it's never an issue. So you don't have to compromise with your audiences because you don't have any. Nobody wants you to die because you're successful and they're not because nobody is really successful. Nobody's truly envious of your success because you don't have it. Uh, uh, so it, it would be perfect because nobody, nobody would seem to even care about what you're doing in order to do it and you don't have to imitate yourself constantly in order to please people i was talking to pedro almodovar not so long ago he's a good friend and uh, a couple of drinks later he started to say I'm, I'm so sick of being almodovar that uh, he, he has to be almodovar constantly he's 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 a phenomenon and uh, he cannot betray the people that go see him and he has to have an output of Almodovarism within within himself. In our case, in the case of the very minor filmmakers, the invisible filmmakers, 
the rest of the world, or at least of our and Nick of the Woods, is 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 freer to do whatever we want. There's there's no nobody expects anything from you. I mean, the horrors are inside. It's just true dislikes amongst the filmmakers, but that doesn't pertain to anything else. It's just like in a big office where the secretary hates the boss or the the, the, the other secretary, and that's the way it works. Now, uh, I can't remember who had said this. I think it was either Andre Bazan or Jean Renoir, but they said that um, a filmmaker really only makes one film in their life and they just keep like remaking it. Do you feel in any sense that that's true for you? Every artist has said that. <laughs> I mean, not, not, not only Bazan and Renoir, who are the same guy, <laughs> but uh, uh, every artist has, has, has said that. I mean, Matisse said that, and uh, of course, Leonardo da Vinci not only said that, but did that. It's only one piece of uh, option that uh, you go through all, all your life. You're, you're, you, you, People don't change. We're, we're, we just grow older and crankier and uh, arteriosclerotic. But uh, basically everybody's the same. You have the same obsessions and you have the same likes and the same dislikes. Even though they have, uh, they, they, they drift uh, with your work. I mean, you learn the, the craft and then you know what to do with the things that you like, so they differ. But basically, we always do more or less the same thing. Uh, at a given point, uh, who was it? Moriak, I think it was, that said that, uh, that uh, man is his style. Or it might have been Paul Valéry, who was much brighter. And uh, 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 le style l'homme. So it's just the obsessions, the, the go going on about your stuff, constantly over and over again that gives you a style and uh, uh, e even though genres can be different at the end your face will always pop up pop up Matisse said that it, when he painted a doorknob it was always a, a self-portrait <laughs> now for you what do you feel are the themes that have defined your films that you keep revisiting when I was a younger director, when I was a young director, uh, I, I always thought it was intolerance that uh, that I talked about. Uh, now I notice it's family relations and uh, likes and dislikes within uh, closely knit groups and uh, but that would be the stories that I talk about. In, in the manner that I talk about these things is is constantly going against uh, constructed order. Usually my work is against uh, est established uh, premises. So it, it, it is about fundamentally destruction, I would very much like to, 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 to say. But uh, it's only my opinion. I hope it's like that. I, I don't know. I, I go out there and I have certain likes, certain uh, affinities to stories or to film, to certain filmmaking, certain style of filmmaking, things like that. When I find that some story becomes inevitable, 
that I started thinking about it constantly, then I, I, I know that that's what I have to go and film. We don't get offers in Mexico like come and make this film for us and things like that. We usually are the ones that take our work to uh, be uh, made, to be produced. So whenever somebody sort of stings you and you become obsessed with that it, and when it becomes inevitable, then that's uh, how I know that I want to make it. And it usually comes up uh, again and again, this idea of breaking uh, an order. And that's a very broad idea, of course, so it's got to be handled uh, very carefully in order not to be pompous and pretentious because things, films are just what they are. And if there's a, a, a options of the understanding of the film and if there are three different uh, readings of uh, the same uh, work, it's, it's not my intention. It's, it's the critics that uh, come up with these things, never me. <laughs> <laughs> has there ever been a, a critic that has come up with an interpretation of your film that you just... Oh, oh many times. There's, this, <laughs> there's, there's a book written about my work. There's, there's several, but especially one that was written uh, a couple of years ago or something like that. That was fantastic. I, I mean, reading that, I, I could, couldn't even go through the whole thing because it was embarrassing and, 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 and very strange. I mean, the things that I said, the things that I did and how I did them was very perplexing. So uh, if, if it's there in, in, in the film, well, let it be welcome. But it was never intentional. One goes through life rather blindfolded in, 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 a, in a stupid sense of uh, understanding things. So when these, when other things gel, it is never so tremendously intentional. I mean, not in my case at all. I, it, it just happens. Now, how do you see your latest two films? I believe that's Divine and El Coronel. Are those the two most recent films? No, there's film? another one. That hasn't come out yet? No, no, it's just recently finished. How do you see these works fitting into kind of the whole, your whole body of work? No, you have to tell me that. That I don't know. Oh. I just make a, every, 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 every film as it comes. And, and I've been making it for 35 years already. I'm, I was a 21-year-old director when I made my first one. I'm a 56-year-old director right now. I'm quite a veteran at this point and with every one of the 20 something films that I've done I've always except for one maybe or two that I knew were gastronomical movies I mean ones that I had to do it in order to eat had a family to feed and I had to take bread and butter to the table except for those every film that I've ever done I've always tried to make the best film possible I failed many, many more times than I'm sad that, that I've succeeded, which is uh, uh, circumstantial. But um, I don't know how they fit in into an oeuvre. Uh, when when I die, somebody will will let me know. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> now, how did you initially um, get into the industry and work with Bunuel? I went to see a lot of films with my, my parents. They used to take me to the movies a lot. And uh, I had met Buñuel when I was a young kid because 
like my father, he had a fascination for weapons, for guns. So they went to shoot, shooting uh, galleries or I don't know what, how you call them. And uh, so, so I knew him. I, you know, I went with my father, and uh, so I, I knew this old guy that used a pistol very inappropriately, and. Uh, my father took me to see Nazarene, which was uh, a revelation. I had grown up in an industry, and my father uh, was a, a commercial film producer. He had uh, captive audiences, and they were intended. Films were intended for the, that 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 sort of of uh, purpose, and uh, the purpose of pleasing these audiences. So my father once took me when I was about fifteen years old to see Nazarene. It was quite a discovery for me because uh, the the thing that I saw there was that uh, film could be different from what I had seen uh, uh, all, all throughout till I was that age. It was quite a discovery. Uh, it it didn't have to be this sort of uh, sclerotic kind of narrative in order to have to exist. I went to see Buñuel a few months later, a few weeks later, and I knocked at his door and I said who I was, and I said, I saw your film, I liked it a lot, I want to be a director like you. He closed the door in my nose, of course, and I was quite amazed. And then he opened the door again, and he brought me into his house, and he said, oh, come on, sit down. He took me to his uh, dining room, he put a little projector there, he picked up... Uh, uh, a reel of Susana Carni Demonio, I guess it was, to focus. Then he took it off. Then he put Shian Andalou uh, once, and he sat me there and he projected the film. I was quite dumbfounded uh, by, by that. He took it off. He projected it again, and then he said, "You want still want to be a director like me?" More than ever, and uh, that was uh, the beginning of a beautiful friendship, no doubt. Uh, many years later, not many, three years later, I uh, asked him if I could uh, watch him direct uh, The Exterminating Angel, and he was amenable enough to let me stand in the corner and watch him do the, the, the movie. I had done it with many other directors in Mexico. There was no film school then, so you learned the craft by watching films or reading about them or reading about film in general and watching the people make them, watching the direct directors make, make, make them. So I had uh, I had stu stood in a corner for, for uh, quite a while with many directors and uh, I was fortunate enough that Buñuel let me stand in more or less the same corner and uh, watch him do it. The bad directors that I saw make uh, their movies were much more stimulating than Buñuel, of course, because when you're 18 years old or 17 years old and uh, bold enough to eat uh, the world by in, 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 in one gasp, I uh, knew that I could do the things that the other directors were doing much, much better. When it was Buñuel, it was very difficult to do it better than him. I mean, it was very difficult even to understand what the hell he was doing in that uh, set at that at, at that time. But it was... Uh, it, it, it was a, a, a very moving and a very enriching experience for me. I didn't learn technique from Buñuel at all. I, I, I saw him from there on till he died. I mean, I, I, I 
I had this this chance, uh, and he never taught me things technical things or stuff like that. I mean, I saw him and I knew how he how how he did it. He he, what he taught me was was rather a moral approach to 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 film, an ethical approach to film, which could basically be summed up by the idea of try not to betray yourself if you if if you can, try to do the work that you think is 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 uh, is important and uh, viable and and that will not go against what you believe and 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 feel basically. Now, do you feel that uh, Divine was uh, more so than your other films, kind of an homage to him? Oh, certainly. Divine is is like Nazarene, forty five years later. It's not Nazarene after Psychedelia, and uh, I I had the uh, great opportunity to work with Raval, who's in Nazarene also. So it was quite evident that it was uh, that, that Buñuel threw around this film more than another, any, any other. My films and, and, and Buñuel's films don't don't resemble each, uh, uh, themselves a lot. Even though I've been accused of being his disciple, and I, I just liked them a lot, but uh, I never tried to do films like he did. Uh, I. I couldn't I, I wouldn't be able to when I came from surrealism I'm just Mexican which is more or less the same thing but uh, uh, I live in an absurd country when I went there and, and and looked for it and he found it uh, so my work and his work have no resemblance a, at all except for uh, divine in which uh, this the the, the the idea of Buñuel sort of flew over the the, the thing and it's full of uh, a little jokes, little internal jokes with with Buñuel. So it, it's it's hopefully a Nazarene after he went through the Cultural Revolution. Now, the way he lets you kind of come on the set and watch him and and kind of helped you into the industry. Are you feeling that you're in the position to do that to young directors coming up at this point? Or they are they even interested? They've, they've never asked. No, never. They've never asked. Um, uh, people don't want to owe anything to their contemporaries. So they're, they're proud enough never to ask. No, I don't have no followers. None, none whatsoever in Mexico. Much, much less uh, than it used to be before. We belong to a, an industry that was very closed. So when I started to make films, only the first generation of directors was still extant. There, were, there, there was no renewal. I went there, I, I entered uh, in, into film when uh, Emilio Fernandez was still making his, his, his movies and uh, the, all the old guys. So the, the age gap was greater than it is right now. When I was standing there watching Buñuel work, I was 18 and he was 62. There was a big age gap. I've been making films since I was 21. So uh, the, the directors that came into, into film after me are not that uh, younger. And, and now they are, of course, but uh, they, they, they don't ask. They, they don't even watch the movies. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
When you were talking uh, about Bunuel, you said that he, you describe Mexico as an absurd country. What do you uh, mean by that in particular? Well, it's a very strong country. I mean, I live in a city with 20 million Mexicans, which is which is uh, quite ferocious. It's uh, it's a country of survivors, basically, especially the one that I like to take a look at, and uh, that makes it for 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 a, a very paradoxical and strange country. It is uh, fascinating and strong and delirious and difficult. So that makes absurdity. It's, um, it, it, many of the things that you see do not belong to the realm of logic. They belong to the realm of Mexico, which makes it very, very strange and very peculiar. Mexico is very fascinating in that, in, in that sense. It's a city. I've never lived in the country. I've only lived in the city that I love desperately and hate as much. So when you have this relationship to a country, you, you, you can sit down and watch the strangest things happen before your eyes, which they usually do. They very frequently do. Now, do you feel in any way that you're an outsider in the country? Every filmmaker in the world is, is, is an outsider in his own country because uh, Hollywood has made us so. I mean, I, I, am, I feel like a foreign filmmaker in Mexico which is very strange and uh, uh, it's been done to us. American films, which are only local in, in, in the United States, are the local films everywhere in the world. So whatever we do is, is considered alien and strange and peculiar and indifferent in many cases. So of course you feel like an outsider in, the, in, in, in that sense. And within the context of whatever is being done in Mexico in film right now, I've always felt like an outsider. I don't know how uh, much I'm considered an outsider by others. With, from my point of view, I'm very much in another, in, in, in another venue, in another walk of life. Now you said you already have another project started or finished? No, it's finished. It's, it's and a, what is that? It's one? a new movie. It's called uh, Such Is Life, and it is an adaptation to uh, today's Mexico of uh, Medea, but the Seneca version, not the Euripides version, which I think is very, is still very extant and viable. It's uh, quite a rough uh, movie. I mean, I went to the people that uh, that financed the film. I said it's an adaptation of Medea. They also was very interesting. Of course, they seem to forget when uh, you, you, you mention that it's a 2,000 year old classic that she kills children and uh, when they see the movie they say it's frightening, it's Medea, it's exactly that. But the peculiarity of this film is that it's the first film shot in Latin America in, in the uh, digital video scheme, it's the first uh, uh, digital movie done in Latin America. We shot it in, in, in digital video and transferred it to 35 millimeters later and uh, the results were absolutely fascinating. And what made you decide to do it in that way? Money? One of the reasons was money, of course. Then I, uh, I like these technological things very, very much. So I bought a little camera 
and started to experiment with it and uh, did a couple of transfers to film with it and I thought it was perfect for the, 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 the things that I talk about. It's a, it's, it's a very raw beauty that uh, it, it gives you and I thought it would be quite um, precise for the, the, the way I talk about things, the way I shoot movies and the results that I always wanted to get. I always wanted a, a, a camera with wings. I started shooting my first film with an enormous Mitchell camera which needed four people to carry it around. And uh, there were a couple of sequences in my first film, a couple of, of, of sequences with no cuts, that uh, I, I, I did. And, and, and I said, it's very difficult to do the things that I want to do with an enormous, very heavy piece of machinery and rails. So I always wanted a winged camera, and now I got it with, with this. Then another consideration, of course, is money. It, is, it costs about... Uh, one-third of what a regular film would cost now it will be cheaper in the very near future so I do believe that it, it is a, a way out of our uh, of our cinemas of, of, of cinemas of countries that don't uh, that are not economically very uh, strong we belong to a very collapsed economy so the cheaper the films the better it is at in the end the less of an economic risk, the more of an artistic risk. And uh, th that, is, that is important. No, but are you planning for it to be shown on film? Oh, it is, it is in film already. We've already seen it in film. It's, so that's the way you want to see it distributed? Yeah, yeah. At this moment, that's the way I want to see it distributed. Eventually, it'll be done just in, 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 the, in the tape, and very soon, not even a tape, They'll be recorded in, in a different uh, manner, and uh, it, it will be controlled to things that you don't even expect at this moment. It is indeed the future. Now, for our countries, it is indeed uh, the, the the only way out. Films cost are very are very costly, even though they're very cheap compared to mm -hmm. films here. But they're very costly for the amount of audiences that we have. So if we start to lower the price, we'll get a better result. In, in, in our films, it will be the difference between not making the films and making them. Video, digital cinema will democratize film like, uh, like, like painting is democratic or, or writing. I mean, any, anybody with a paper and a pencil can write a sonnet. Only the good ones remain. Of course, but now everybody will be able to do it for for a fraction of the cost of what is is, is done right now. A country that has an output of a, around eight to ten films a year will now be able, with the same cost, to have around twenty five or twenty eight films a year, which is important. I mean, a lot of um, of no good movies will come out of that. Of course, a lot of of, of trash will come of that. But I'm positive that the Mozart of Mexican films will be born with these with, with, with this technology mm -hmm. so it is very important that it, uh, it, it is done very important and what kind of a release is that film set for is it opening soon or? It, uh, our films have to be shown through a festival our, our the, the films of the invisible filmmakers have to be shown through a festival so that they have 
the sort of a critical attention, whatever that may be, it's very dangerous because it uh, you not necessarily have a film that people will like or critics will like. So it's dangerous, but it's the only way out. So we need this platform, this launching platform, in order to have our films seen. So uh, it'll be shown in a festival. I don't know which one. Festivals are very strange. You don't send your films to the festivals if you're not from Hollywood. You get invited. So you send them to whomever, or the people at the festivals uh, get rumors of what you're doing, and they ask to see the movie, and they invite it or not. So we're waiting for an invitation and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And from there on, it'll be released normally in, in, in screens, wherever the film is, will, 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 be, will be seen. It'll be seen in France, it'll be seen in Spain, because those are the co-producers mm-hmm. of, uh, of the film. And then probably in Latin America, and then in maybe a dozen countries throughout the world. Well, we hope so. It's a very strange movie. <laughs> are you happy with it? I'm absolutely happy with it. It's what I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to do one one film that doesn't have the Damocles sword on top of your head that uh, will fail and you feel awful about that. There's no problem there anymore. It uh, it won't fail because it's cheap. So, or or it will fail much more modestly than than than, than enormous catastrophes which I've had many many times. So I'm I'm pleased with it, and I and, and the versatility, the flexibility of the medium is is formidable. You can do many many things that you couldn't before. So did you feel this was kind of a liberating experience? There's there's truly no liberty in in, in art, but uh, it took me nearer to what I've always wanted to do. I was at the screening of Divine at the Latino Film Festival. And um, I was just wondering if you could repeat for me what you had talked about with heresy. Oh. <laughs> I've, I've always liked it. I mean, I read a book by Norman Cohn called Pursuit of the Millennium many years ago, which is a very interesting book about uh, heresies in the year 1000 or around there when the first apocalyptic notion of the world was going to happen. And... Uh, these heresies happen throughout history and throughout the world. They're all more or less similar, and they all have more or less the same names. The New Jerusalem is a 1,000-year-old heresy. New Jerusalem meant heaven and earth, which is not what is promised to you when you're alive. You will have heaven in heaven. And uh, the New Jerusalem promised in with a second coming of Christ and with uh, the Messiah or uh, the, the, the possibility of eternal life and uh, of happiness and, uh, and, and, and freedom, of equality. and I mean, utopia, in other words, and the creation of utopia, which <clears throat> etymologically means there's no such place, <clears throat> is true. So I've always liked creators of utopia that fall on their faces within their dreams that the things can don't happen like that so it was i always thought that it was very interesting and when i read about this little sect in mexico that had also the appearance of a medieval sect and i thought this is a great opportunity to make uh, a movie i had to wait for many years first because it was rather more expensive than all the rest of the films that i had done 
because it had a bunch of extras and it, it was a, a slightly longer shoot than the other films. So I had to wait for quite a while to do it. And fundamentally, not only that, but I knew that I had to have a fine-tuned instrument to do that 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 film. So I had to wait for a while until I felt that I was capable of of doing it. <clears throat> we had thought about this film, Pasalicia Garcia Diego and myself, for many, many years. And uh, suddenly we said, well, now we can do it. And we sat down to uh, perpetrate it in whatever manner and fashion was viable. Uh, it's it's a peculiar film because it's a mural. It's 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 not like in painting. It's not like a, a, a small portrait. It's like a huge thing that you have to see some simultaneously, and then you focus on whatever episodes or characters you're interested in, or or <clears throat> the characters that uh, take your fancy. So uh, it's peculiar because the structure is like that. It's a film that is not structured linear, linearly, but uh, it goes from the beginning to the middle to the end to the middle again to the end to the beginning again. So it's it's strange. You know, I liked it very, very much. It's a film that's been tremendously misunderstood. I, I don't know why. People say it's a minor film. It, I don't like It's one of the ones that I've, that I like the most in my, in my career. That's one of my favorite of yours. Mm -hmm. That's one of my favorite of yours. Oh, so. I thank you kindly. I thank you very, very much. It's a film that I like very much. That I that, that moves me and makes me laugh and things like that. The couple of times I saw it. I love the line in it too, where you say, um, "Movies are like God." Yeah. They create worlds. Yes, of course. It's it's about filmmaking, of course. The the in 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 the end of the end, it's. Uh, Nazarene watching movies, <laughs> so it's, it's it's about films. So if um, if we take that that movies create world or movies are like God, do you see yourself kind of as a benevolent God or? No, oh, I'm very malevolent God, no <laughs> doubt. The, like the God of the Gnostics, I mean, he was a very erroneous and defective God that uh, watches his much more defective creatures in, in, in front of him and feels horrible. <laughs> Uh, one last question. I just want, if you had to sum it up, why would why do you say you make movies? What is it that drives you? It's inevitable. It's 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 like breathing. It, fundamentally, I, I, what drives me is uh, the knowledge at this point that uh, making a movie gives you amnesia about the other ones. So there's so many things that there are there and you wouldn't want uh, to be there that you just could keep on doing the work. It's it's so uh, petrifying when you finish a work and you know you ha you'll have to stay for a long while without making one that, that uh, uh, in order to forget the one that you did, you just go on and do the next one. It's quite inevitable. Uh, I question myself many, many times at this point, why do I keep on doing it? It's difficult, it's humiliating, it's very frustrating. You never seem to get to where you want to in, in many aspects of, 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 of this. Appreciation is minimal, if at all. It's, it's very difficult, but uh, 
but it's the most wonderful work in the world. If it wasn't so, nobody would do it. <laughs> because all the rest is true for almost everybody. It's hard. It's 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 very very frightening to be in front of the of the camera, to be behind the camera and have in front of it this blank page of, of film. It's it's very frightening. And to get to that point, you've had to go through so much that if it wasn't really the best possible option, uh, nobody would. It's 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 fascinating. It's. Uh, it's fun. It's uh, it's stimulating. It uh, makes you think while you yell. It's it's good. It's good. It's 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 like drinking water. It's like having a lustral bath every once in a while. Now, can you tell me the name of the film? You said there was the one film that the was never shown that it was banned in uh, no I don't want to oh. s to tell it it's 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 a, it's a it's a pretty horrendous little movie and uh, somebody might pick it up and say why haven't we seen this <laughs> it's a horrible movie I mean I have my lot of horrible movies right. but one learns from that mm -hmm. all right well I really appreciate your time I uh, thank you very much That was filmmaker Arturo Ripstein in an interview I did in 2000, but his remarks are all relevant to his work today, including his most recent film, Bleak Street. As with Ripstein, director Isaac Esbon must compete with Hollywood for theater space in his own country, but he also reveals the influence of growing up with American pop culture. His latest film, Los Parecidos, is a sci-fi film that pays homage to the American TV show The Twilight Zone. But while Esbon reveals the influence of American movies and TV, he invests his film with a distinctly Mexican personality. I spoke with Esbon by phone just after his film had its first screening at the San Diego Latino Film Festival last month. I saw your new film, Los Parasitos, at the San Diego Latino Film Festival, and that seems to have been the perfect argument for why people should attend festivals, because having you there to discuss the film and answer questions was such an enriching experience because you put so much thought into your film. It was great. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I'm really glad you were able to be there. And I, and I completely agree with you. I think festivals are really important and um I mean, this is going to sound maybe not, not objective, but I do think that if you watch a film and then get to meet the director and talk to him or, or hear him talking about the film, you can like it even more because you can get more inside his head and what he wanted to do with the film. And, and I mean, at least speaking uh, about me as an audience, when, when I go to festivals, and even before I made a feature films, when I was in festivals and I met directors, I used to like the films even more. Sometimes even the opposite can happen. I mean, if, if, if a director, you really don't like the, him as a person or what he said, you can maybe dislike the film a little bit, but that's not the usual. I mean, for me, the usual is that if I get to hear the director talking, I like the film more. And that's why I also try to uh, always be there with my film. And um, I mean, and not only that, there are a lot of many great things about festivals. Uh, festivals is where you uh, do networking, you meet people, other distributors, buyers, and uh, I, I got my agents and manager representing me thanks to, to festivals. And also in the business point of view, I mean, festivals is where 
distributors or buyers can hear about films and buy them for certain territories. So I do believe that festivals are very, very important. Your film was part of the Un Mundo Extraño sidebar. Explain what your film was about and why it was such a perfect fit for that program. Well, uh, Los Parecidos, uh, the similars, the, the English title, is basically, I always say, like a love story to the sci-fi of the 60s. And like any love story, it's written with, with a lot of passion, right? And it's basically um, a homage to like the Twilight Zone episodes and many B-movies and sci-fi stories from the 60s. The plot takes us uh, in 1968, one night uh, when there's a very, very hard rain in the in, in a bus station in the middle of nowhere, like five hours away from Mexico City. And we have this group of eight strangers locked in the station trying to get out. And they cannot get out because of the rain. The buses are not coming. The, the roads are all, are all flooded. So it's kind of like this classic setup of characters lost by the rain, kind of like identity with John Cusack, right? And in this setup, you know, uh, people always bring the best or, or the worst in them. And they start, you know, fighting and paranoia starts arising. Like, what's happening? Is this your fault? Is this your fault? Why we cannot get to the city? And then on top of that element, suddenly a very weird thing starts happening to them where they start to discover that their faces are becoming similar, physically similar to one of them, and they don't know why. And they start pointing fingers. Who's who's the responsible for this? And I won't tell you more. The rest of it, you got to see it. But, yeah, I do believe that it is a strange film. Because I think the genre is mainly sci-fi and horror, but it also has some comedy on it, some of like dark humor. It's funny that some people have told me, I have to tell you something, I hope you don't feel bad about it, but I laugh at some point. And I'm like, why am I going to feel bad? You're supposed to laugh. I mean, there's dark humor in it. But people don't feel it as humor just because maybe there's a a scary music playing next to a funny moment, you know what I mean? So it's a... It has a weird tone, and it's definitely, I believe, a great midnight movie, something to watch at, at midnight, or a great genre movie for fans of, of sci-fi and nostalgia and horror, and therefore, I, th- I think it fits perfectly well into the Un Mundo Extraño program. You mentioned some of your influences were 60s sci-fi, and, and specifically, th- there were TV shows like Twilight Zone and Outer Limits. So talk a little bit about the influences you had in creating this. Yes, uh, well... I really like the psychological part of sci-fi. You know, when when the sci-fi or the paranormal element is used as a metaphor to talk about a very human element. I mean, it might sound strange, but it's uh, it's actually pretty... I mean, what I mean, it might sound contradictory, saying to use a fantastic element to, to talk about a very human element, but that's what the Twilight Zone used to do, you know. The Twilight Zone had these great stories of, I don't know, somebody who lost his job, and, and then he finds the devil, you know? Uh, I mean, it's, it's like a very a very realistic thing, a very human thing, where then a fantastic element is added to use as a metaphor to that. So I really grew up watching Twilight Zone. I mean, I know I didn't grow up in the, in the 60s. I actually grew up in the 90s, but I used to watch it in, in the TV, and then I bought all the DVDs, and I actually used to watch one episode every night before going to bed. And um, not only Twilight Zone, but like The Outer Limits, and, you know, the good fans of, of sci-fi need to know that sci-fi doesn't stay only in in the in TV. It can also be in cinema, in books, in comics. Like, I love literature from writers like Philip K. Dick, Ray Bradbury, A.G. Wells, Stephen King, and even some modern sci-fi TV series like Fringe. 
and Lost, and well, I mentioned Identity, which was a big influence as well, and some other movies like The Spark of John Carpenter, uh, The Thing was a big influence. I mean, obviously, I loved The Hateful Eight, Tarantino's new movie, which I saw it after finishing The Similars, but I said, well, this is a film about eight people locked in by a storm in a contained environment, you know, how, how am I not going to love that? So, uh, yeah, those were some of my influences, and I wanted to do like a tribute, homage, love letter to the Twilight Zone. And when I was writing the script, I said, well, maybe not all of my films are going to be such a close tribute to something like the Twilight Zone. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. But I do know that this is the one that is going to be the most, you know? This is the one that is going to, uh, that is going to approach more to what a tribute is. So if I'm going to do it, let's go all the way. So I decided to have a narrator opening and closing the film, kind of like Rod Serling. Parece que el mundo entero se está cayendo esta noche. Pero Martín... No tiene razón alguna para estar preocupado. Absolutamente todo lo que él aprecia se encuentra dentro de esta oficina, salvo y seguro de la lluvia y de otros fenómenos inexplicables y peligrosos que afectan a nuestro mundo. And have the music, kind of like the music that Bernard Herrmann used to do for Hitchcock films or for Twilight Zone. I decided to go all the way with, with, with all, all those elements, but I do feel that uh, I like filmmakers when they use their references. But I think it's also important to create something new with those references. So that, that's what I tried to do. I didn't want it to look just like a copy, a homage, pastiche. My intention was to pick up those references and do something new with that. that that's what I wanted to do. Well, the thing that seems to be new is that while it is an homage to an American TV show, it has very uniquely Mexican qualities to it. Can you talk a little bit? Oh, that's right, yeah. Talk a little bit about some of the the elements that you use that maybe an American audience might not pick up on as readily as a, a Mexican audience would. Well, yes, of course. There's, there's, of course, all the pop culture of Mexico in that in that period. And I mean the songs that we hear in the radio. Uh, like like one song is from the Rebel Cats, which is actually a very modern band nowadays, but they play music like from the 60s. And there's uh, all the pop elements, uh, also, you know, the, the magazines and the pictures. They obviously show James Bond and Marilyn Monroe, which is people that Americans do know, but they also show Maria Felix or Pedro Infante. The story takes place in the eve of October 2nd, 1968 which is a few hours before the Tlatelolco massacre, which is a very red spot in Mexico's social history where, um, you know, in the, uh, just to talk a little bit of context on that, you know how in the 60s there was a lot of inconformity, not only in Mexico, actually, but also it happened in France, in the U.S., and in many countries all over the world where the youth people, the young society, were doing revolts. And, the, and, and uh, in Mexico it happened pretty pretty hard, especially because... Uh, there were some some revolts uh, made by students of the university for a lot for a lot of months in 1968, and the president had this big pressure that the Olympics were taking place in Mexico in October 1968. So he wanted to do something to shut all these manifestations, all these revolts, and and there was one one revolt in Tlatelolco, which is uh, like a plaza in Mexico, 
and like a square, and suddenly the army opened fire and they killed a lot of students. And it's a big mess what happened. Actually, some people that remain missing until today. And uh, I like I didn't want to make a political film or a film that talks about that that night because my cinema is more like a thriller, entertaining sci-fi film. I didn't want to do a like a political film, but I did uh, wanted to do something that. You know, the good sci-fi, like those examples we were mentioning, the, the Twilight Zone and those writers, I believe the, the good sci-fi always had a political or social commentary behind it. So I said, okay, what if I want to do that for Mexico? You know, I mean, the classic example would be in the U.S. It was in that period, maybe the Cold War. Maybe we would see a UFO coming coming down on the sky, and it was actually a metaphor to, for the Russians invading or the nuclear fear or whatever. I said, what was happening in Mexico in the 60s? Because we had no Cold War or, or, or that. And then I came up with, of course, uh, Latinoco was happening. And, um, you know, there was this big inconformity of young people feeling that all authorities wanted, wanted us to, to be the same. They wanted all young people to feel the same. All authorities, I mean, your work, your 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 parents, the, the government, all. So I suddenly felt it would be a good idea to make a round movie where, because of a paranormal element in the story, people actually start becoming the same in this context. So that, that that's something that is a Mexican element that some American audiences don't know about. But I'll tell you what, I've been surprised because this thing in Tlatelolco was so big and so it was such a tragedy that a lot of people in the world have heard about it. And, for example, in the world premiere of the film in Fantastic Fest, which was in Austin, Texas, in September last year, and one guy, uh, completely American, like a uh, uh, grown-up, uh, raised his hand in the end and said, "I'm surprised you you decided to do a film with such a such a controversial date in Mexican history. It's like if someone in America makes a film where eight people are lost in a in an air, airport trying to take a flight in 9/11, you know." Uh, so I was surprised that a lot of Americans and Europeans do know about the date. But I also think if you don't know about it, you still can understand and, and like the movie. Yes, definitely. Talk about using a confined space and kind of trapping these characters in a tight location, because it does create this claustrophobia that's really great. The tone is wonderful. Oh, well, thank you so much. And yeah, the, con- the confined space is, it was very important for me. I'm a huge fan of of, of films that work in a confined space. And I think it's a huge challenge, both for the writer and the director and everyone behind the film, and also for the audience itself, to be completely hooked and entertained. Uh, so I, I like I like challenges. I've done ambitious things. I, I mean, it might seem non-ambitious because it's like, okay, you only have one space, but it's the opposite. What I learned is that it's, it's the most ambitious because you have to use all your elements in, the, in that space. I think it's even harder to do a film like this than a film where, where you have a lot of spaces. And um, uh, like I said already, that I love The Hateful Eight and uh, a lot of Twilight Zone episodes were like this, The Thing which, uh, from John Carpenter. I just saw actually in San Diego last week uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane, which is a maybe sequel to Clo- Cloverfield. And I think it's it's also a confined piece and our Borid, which actually takes place the whole film inside a box. Those movies, when I see a, a great confined movie, I really love it because it's, I know the challenge I took to make. And maybe not all my movies are, are going to be like that, but I want to try something like that for this one, yeah. 
you have this confined space. You also talked about your score. You were trying to kind of um, pay homage to Bernard Herrmann, and you talked about how you, you were using kind of this minimal score, which complements the, um, the location very well. Yes, well, I don't, I don't think it's completely minimal. I mean, I think it's contrasting. It has some bits, especially in the maybe in the first 30 minutes of the film, where it's very minimal. I mean, it doesn't look like the score of a horror movie. But, uh, it, it's more like more, more melodic, more like a Hollywood melodrama score, kind of score. But then, where when things start getting darker and darker, I think the score becomes very big and 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 you know and loud. And uh, but it was intended like that. It's uh, well, I worked with the same composer who I worked with uh, on on the incident, and I do believe that music is very important in film. I think music is very important to to make you feel certain emotions. I know some directors would hate me saying that music making you feel something, but I, I mean, in, in composition with the images and all, I do like music that makes you feel something. And uh, I feel like nowadays. Uh, music every time is less important in film. Like some some films, uh, I mean, and, and I don't, I'm not talking independent cinema. Even some big Hollywood films that can have budget to do a big score, and and the score looks like generic, you know, like it was just uh, like it looks like the score of any other movie. And and I sometimes wonder what happened with you know classic scores like like John Williams, like what he did for Back to the Future, Jurassic Park, and Star Wars, which I mean, you can still remember the, the music of that film 20 years after, and and you get of the theater singing that that, that 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 score. And I feel like that essence has been lost a little bit in the like in the last 10 years or so. I mean, it also depends in in which film. I mean, some films are dramatic and intense for a more realistic approach on the on the elements on the plot. In those cases, sometimes some movies even have no music at all, and it works perfectly fine. I mean. But for the kind of cinema which I'm doing at least at the moment, and especially for a piece like this, which was a retro piece, a tribute, uh, everything is done like in the 60s, the acting, the set, the camera movement, I felt like the music needed to be like that as well. So we worked with Eddie Lang, who's a very good composer. He has done some stuff in, in L.A. as well and in Europe. And uh, it was like a big department of, of, of a film. He took four months just composing, we recorded the, the the music with the Prague Symphonic Orchestra, and um, Eddie always makes fun about it how the movie is 89 minutes long, and it's 71 minutes music. So it's like he says, like man, it's too much. <laughs> but you know, like I said in the in the beginning, I maybe not all my films are going to be like this, but since this was very close to a tribute of of that, I wanted to be like that, and I think it. It, may, it might sound like a lot of music in terms of minutes of running time of the film, but I think it works perfectly well with the film, and it's exactly what I had pictured in my mind. And I think what I meant, not so much minimal in terms of not having an impact, but you used not a lot of different instruments in creating the score. Wasn't that the case? Yeah, that, that's what I mean when I said it's, it's contrasting. Like, it has some elements that the score is almost unnoticeable, uh, it's very quiet, 
And then some moments where it becomes huge, you know, and, and that contrast is, I think, the important thing in, a, in any score, in any kind of movie, yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is your second film. You did another film called El Incidente, and you've actually kind of tied the films together in an interesting way. Can you comment about how you are kind of creating a universe for your movies? Yes, uh, well, I'm not going to say exactly how we tied to Don't Ruin the End for... No, don't don't it. give it away, but, but if you can kind of yeah, we'll, we'll give it away. But yeah, but but yeah, I, I, I mean, I really like when you know filmmakers like Kevin Smith or like Tarantino does it as well, or when writers like Stephen King, you know, when they are reading it, and suddenly he mentions the Shawshank State Prison, and like it's all part of one universe. And I want to start doing that with my film. So in the incident, uh, there were a lot of of things that were explained. Well, there was one thing that was not explained, that, that was who created these incidents, like these rules that the characters are living upon. And uh, I kind of decided to answer that question in similars, where we see who or what created the incident. And maybe in my third film, I might use like a reference for the similars and, and keep going like that, because, yeah, I do like the idea of, I love references. I'm one of those geeks who likes to get in. Every time I like a movie, I go to IMDb, I look at the trivia data, I, I I connect everything. And, you know, I'm one of those guys who used to watch Lost with my friends with a pen and a piece of paper, writing theories about everything. I, I kind of want to create that in my films as well, like a universe where Easter eggs connect with, with one thing and the other. Well, and El Incidente could also fit into this Un Mundo Extraño kind of feel where it's not the real world exactly and it creates this different kind of universe and time frame and everything. Yes, actually, the film played there last year in the the same section. Yeah, and I couldn't go there. The the actor uh, Raul Mendes was there for the film, but I I couldn't be there last year. But yes, I completely agree. It fits that that section as well. So, what's it like for a filmmaker in Mexico now? Is it easy or difficult to be a young independent filmmaker starting out? Well, it's always difficult. I say, you know, when I get this question, I always say that it's uh, it's like a contradictory answer. What I can tell you, because it's of course very hard. I mean, making a film, I can tell you, is the hardest job in the universe because it's practically creating a world, and you have to make it believable. Every film is like a big trip, and sometimes, I mean, it's it's just like you started as one person and you end as a different person. So it is very hard. At the same time, uh, there's every time there are more support in Mexico, especially we have big support to to make films like from the Mexican film industry. Eighty uh, percent of the films are are funded by the state by by funds you can apply. Uh, and it's not so easy to get them, but if you do get them, I mean, something that I see they don't have it in other countries, in Latin America or or, or not in the United States. I mean, I see in the United States the industry is much more spreaded. Like uh, maybe the industry is more industry based, more business based, but it's uh, but it, but you need to have a connection in the business to to make a film, you know. And uh, and in in Mexico, it, 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 uh, everything is more uh, funded by the state. Especially in, in the last ten years, there's been a lot of developing in, in this in these supports that that the film in, film institute can can give you. Um, I guess the the and and yeah, I mean also internationally speaking, I mean in every level we see from Mexican filmmakers uh, doing more what is called like art film and winning awards in Cannes, 
to Mexican filmmakers winning Hollywood awards like the Oscars, which I know it's not for a Mexican film, but it's still a Mexican filmmakers, which obviously help us in terms of image. And I do think that Mexico is in a golden era, beginning a golden era of cinema again, although there's one problem, which is the people that go to the movie, the audience. I don't know if you heard, but a statistic just came out two weeks ago saying that last year, 2015, we broke the record in Mexico, the biggest year of, of film production in, in history in Mexico, which uh, I think it was like 150 films produced in, in one year. And before that, the record was 147 in like 1950-something, you know, like in the golden era of Mexican cinema. So after almost 70 years, we broke the record again. However, then the next thing of the statistics showed that of, the, of those films, only half of them saw a release in theatrical, you know? So we have a very... It's, it's a very ironic thing where we, we make a lot of films, but sometimes not many of them are audience-based. Like, the industry has become very director-based, especially because of the way it's funded. I think that as a filmmaker in Mexico, what I would want is, first of all, um, to have more support of the exhibitors, of the, of the theatrical chains, of distributors, of the audience, obviously, to, to trust more Mexican films. But also, I think it's up to us, Mexican filmmakers, to make more films for the audience and not just, just for, for us, you know? And, I mean, I always try to do that when I make a film. Obviously, it's personal. It has personal elements. But I always wanted to be also for the audience. So I, I try to, to be in a middle ground because the audience is who eventually is going to see it. And also, you know, for the genres in which I'm working on, which is sci-fi and horror, I do believe that there's more opportunity in the States or somewhere else just for the, for the genre. So I'm all, I also have some projects to try to do something over there as well. Mm-hmm. And do you feel that there's anything that ties together the new generation of filmmakers coming up? Do you feel that some of the younger filmmakers are being a little more extreme or a little more fitting into this un mundo extraño kind of thing? Or do you feel there's a wide variety of, of, of filmmaking going on in this new... I think, that, I think there's a variety. I mean, there's, there's many young people making films, that's right, maybe more than before. Because this the grant that you can apply, I, it's something not so old. It's something that has maybe 10 years or a little more. So before, like in the 80s or in the 90s, if you wanted to make a film and you were in Mexico, uh, you, you needed to have a lot of connections, get a lot of money raised. And uh, so maybe a 28-year-old or 30-year-old man wouldn't be doing it. You know? it, it was harder. Also, and this is not only Mexico, but everywhere in the world, the cameras every time they get you know, smaller and uh, easier to, to, to work on, which is by, why, by the way, creativity is every time more important because if the elements to make a film are, are more accessible day to day, then the creativity and the idea behind the film becomes more important. But so nowadays there's more young people making films, but I would say there's a wide variety. There's people making all kinds of genres from very contemplative social dramas to, to more commercial films like romantic comedies, action films, to genre films, which actually genre is very commercial in Mexico. So uh, there, there's been all kind of all kind of stuff going on, and uh, I, I do believe that the, maybe there is a tendency to to do things in a more 
open-minded way. So there is more genre films every time. So like, like you were saying, those that may, were maybe the films that would fit into a un mundo extraño. So every time there is more genre films uh, being made. Like, for example, there was a film called uh, Mexico Barbaro, which uh, I participated in as well, which is an anthology, kind of like the ABC of Bed or VHS, where they call those uh, eight filmmakers who work on the genre, and they told us which to a horror legend from Mexico. That's something that maybe wouldn't have happened like 20 years ago. And these eight people are all like me, like I'm just one of them, and the other seven also work in this spectrum of the genre films, and they do, they do this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I do think that every time, is, uh, I mean, just because there are more films, there are more films of all kinds of genres. So there are more dramas, but also more genre films. Well, we actually had Mexican Barbaro's show here in San Diego at the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival, which was curated by Miguel Rodriguez, who curated this Un Mundo Extraño Oh, series. that's right. Yeah, yeah. So that was great to see. And that I enjoy genre filmmaking. And to me, genre filmmaking feels a little, sometimes, especially with horror and sci-fi, feels a little bit rebellious, so... <laughs> it's always nice to see. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, it is rebellious, and I think I think that's why maybe young people are approaching more in the genre. Yeah. And can you talk at all about what you have coming next? Do you know? What... Oh yes. Well, actually, I I had a pretty good good uh, good luck in the way that when I filmed the incident, I already had the funding to the similars because the incident was funded privately from private investors. But for the similars, we applied for funding at the Mexico Film Institute. So when uh, because because we raised two two films in two such different ways, they were almost at the same time. I just shot the similar seven months after the incident, which is great because uh, you know they say in Mexico a lot of people make a first film, but the gap between the first and the second is always longer. And for me, apparently, maybe the gap will be more between second and the third. Although it's not going to be like a big gap. Luckily, I have many projects in in, in coming. But it's not like as quick as when I did the incident, and you know, six months later I was shooting another film, right? So uh, now I have a, you know, as a director, it's always very important to have many projects in development because projects take a lot of time to to, and projects have many stages. Maybe one project is in pre-production, other is in the editing, other is in the distribution process. So uh, I currently have uh, two screenplays which I'm developing to do in Mexico. Hopefully this year or the next or next year. I also have two screenplays which I'm developing to do in English, spoken in the states. Uh, hopefully next year as well. There's also one screenplay where I'm attached as a director, which is not a screenplay written by me. So that this will be like my first uh, work for hire, which is something I'm excited about, which is like approaching someone else's story. And this is also in the states. This is also something I got with my agent and manager. And if all runs smoothly, that might be shooting this year in the summer. I also have an independent film that uh, might shoot in Mexico at the end of the year. And I'm also part of an anthology, kind of like a Mexico Barbaro, but more for science fiction, made by 12 directors, which we're doing in Mexico this year. So I'm attached to all of those. And, you know, whatever happens first, uh, I, uh, hopefully all of them will happen. Maybe not all of them will happen within the range of one year, because that is physically impossible. But maybe, you know, projects have its route and way of, of moving forward, so eventually all of them will happen, hopefully. Well, you sound like you're potentially very busy there. I am. I, well, I, I work on being busy because I, I want to keep making films. <laughs> uh, and can you um, remind me which segment you had done in uh, Mexican Barbaros? 
Oh, yeah, I did the segment number four called La Cosa Más Preciada, That Precious Thing. It's the one about the Alushes, which Alushes is like the Mexican version of the goblin or the troll, which is the one about the couple of young people that go to the woods because she wants to lose her virginity in a cabin. And she does lose her virginity, but to the goblin. You remember that? <laughs> yes, very clearly. Do you, do you enjoy, since you're doing an anthology, kind of a science fiction anthology one, did you enjoy that process of kind of working with a group of filmmakers where you're all creating kind of your own little chapters? Oh, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, uh, I think it's interesting that it's a, it's a film that was not funded by any big company or big... Uh, it was basically just eight people who we all want to make films, and we and, and, and we decided to, to do it, right? And it's uneven, obviously, but like any anthology, I mean, anthologies are always kind of uneven just because there's, there's you know, many, many, many different directors with different styles. So I think, I think it was, in, I really like anthology, like ABCs of Dead or VHS. I just saw Southbound, which is uh, very, very cool. Maybe I'm even interested in an anthology where it's, Less director with 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 longer segments, so it's like more time for each director to develop his story. But yeah, Mexico ever was was really good. Uh, I mean, now that you recall my segment, it's actually pretty different than the incident, yes, which was at the moment my most subtle film. And I mean, the incident is not subtle at all. I mean, people staying locked in a staircase for thirty five years is not what you would call subtle. But however, it is subtle if you compare it to the rest of my work. So I was just coming out of doing what is my most of film at the moment, the incident, and then they invited me to Mexico. So I was like, okay, I need to go crazy now, you know? And that's why I came up with this story of the Alushes. And it's also pretty, pretty funny that they called us to, to, to Mexico Barbaro, and they called eight crazy guys like me, and they told each of them, okay, there's no censorship. All of you have to do something crazy. So imagine eight people, each of them trying to be crazier than the other seven. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's a pretty fucked up, interesting, weird film, and I really like it. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it, too. And I enjoyed the, even though all of them try to be extreme, they're very different from each other in the choices yeah, that they make. Right. And um, But I, I will say that your section, you, your piece, like your other two feature films, does kind of work within a confined space as well. Well, it does, maybe, right? In the cabin. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I never thought of that as a confined piece, but, but now that you say it, I think it is, yeah. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time, and I really look forward to whatever you create next. So hopefully we'll be speaking again. Well, thanks so much. And yeah, thank you for the interview and for giving me all this long space. And yeah, I just want to say to everyone who's listening, uh, thank you so much for being interested in my, in my work. And yeah, let's keep in touch. I mean, you, you can follow me on Twitter at Isaac Esvan, just like my name altogether. And there you can see more more information of the films and all. And uh, yeah, also when the podcast is up there, please send it to me so we can also share it in the social networks of the film. And, uh, and let's keep in touch. Thank you for everything. Yes, thank you very much. And best of luck to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and I'd love to hear your comments and get reviews. You can also find archives of the podcast at kpbs.org slash junkie podcast. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.
KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.